Well, the Sistine Chapel is one of the true jewels of world art. After spending nearly four years laying on his back, day after day, painting it, Michelangelo finished his masterpiece in 1512. Very soon afterwards, the chapel went into daily use. Now, in those days, the only light source came from candles. As candles burned year after year, the soot began to rise up to the ceiling, obscuring the paintings. And after 400 years of soot and grime and dust collecting on the ceiling, the original art needed to be restored. And so a team of restorative artists worked on the Sistine Chapel from 1984 to 1999, trying to restore the monochrome colors to their original beauty. Now, prior to the restoration process, many in the art community thought that Michelangelo was a genius of composition. After all, they said, how did he think to have Adam's hand stretching out, yearning to find the finger of God, which was already reaching out for him? But it was also widely believed that Michelangelo's coloration was mediocre at best. It was too dark, too monochromatic, too blah. And yet, when they restored those frescoes to their original state, everyone could see the beautiful, fresh, and even spring-like colors. Pale pink, apple green, vivid yellow, and the sky blue against a background of warm, pearly gray. You see, when the maker's true brilliance and goodness was revealed, people had to change their assumptions about Michelangelo. You know, in a similar way, for many of us, the soot, the grime, the dust of daily life have obscured our vision of God's goodness, the purity of our fellowship with him. Our connection to God at times can seem blah, mediocre, maybe even dark. But through the word of God, the Spirit's presence, and the love and fellowship of other Christians, God begins a work of restoration in us so that we can see the true colors of his brilliant goodness. We are designed by him, created by him, his works of precious art. Each of us is a masterpiece. And it is God's intent then that we connect first of all with our creator and then with the rest of his creation. God calls us out of this world of soot and grime and darkness and he invites us into his kingdom of light. So today we are continuing our exploration of the first letter of the Apostle John. And we're focusing on this unique biblical concept of koinonia, or fellowship. Last week we learned that we can only find true koinonia, real fellowship, in Christ alone. Now this world offers numerous forms of counterfeit fellowship via romantic relationships, 
groups with shared interests, hobbies, athletics, work, and career. But any fellowship discovered through these avenues is merely a dark shadow, a monochrome version of God's real intent for us as his children. And so today we want to consider how we might determine if our koinonia is genuine, true, pure, the real deal. So as we work our way through the text this morning, I hope that we can discover that pure fellowship can only be found when we are moving in three distinct directions. Direction number one, we must be walking in the light. Walking in the light. A while back, I was talking with a friend, and I asked him, hey, how are you doing? And the answer back was, not great. Not great. I have sad. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, you're sad. What's going on? And they replied, no, no, I'm not sad. I have sad. Seasonal affective disorder, S-A-D. It's a real thing, sometimes called the winter blues. It's a officially, officially entitled seasonal affective disorder. And it's a, a specific type of depression that's related to the changes of season. Sad begins and ends about the same time every year. And if you're like most people with sad, then your symptoms start sometime in the fall and they continue on through the winter months, sapping your energy and making you feel moody. Well, what is it that causes seasonal affective disorder? Well, very simply, it is this, a lack of light, a lack of light. You see, whether we like it or not, light affects our hormone production. And when it is light, our body produces the hormones that are necessary to give us energy and a good appetite and a good mood, and it lifts our spirits. We simply need light every day, and we need a lot of it to keep us going. And that's why one of the most effective remedies for SAD is what's called bright light therapy. My friend went on to explain to me that his doctor prescribed for him a, a light board, a particular board that he sets up in his home, and he sits in front of it for 30 to 60 minutes every day. And when it's used regularly, it helps my friend to feel a lot better and more energetic. Exposure to light is helpful and healthy. Well, as I thought about that, I wondered this. Could the same thing be true in a spiritual sense? Perhaps SAD could also stand for spiritual affective disorder. A state of spiritual depression. A spiritual crisis, you might say. It could happen to all of us at any time. You know, perhaps there's times when you feel great about your Christian life and your relationship with God. Maybe you're spending time reading the Word and studying and praying, maybe writing in a, in a journal. You're eager to be with God's people in worship. You're excited to talk to others about Jesus. But then there might come times 
also that for no obvious reason, our spiritual life starts to dry up. Our appetite for the Word of God fades. And it feels more and more burdensome to pray. Maybe we begin to skip, skip our Bible study time or times of gathering with God's people and even feel as if God is far away. Spiritual affective disorder. And so then I wondered, could perhaps bright light therapy be the remedy also for this kind of spiritual depression? In verse 5 of our text that Richie read, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What a bold statement. God is light, perfect light, 100% light, hallelujah. But then at the same time, that, that raises another important question. What is that light? What does John really mean when he says or calls God light? Well, earlier this week, as I was preparing this message, I sat down at my computer and I Googled for Bible lessons on walking in the light. Bible lessons, walking in the light. And what did I come across? Well, I found a, just a multitude of teachings about how to live a better Christian life. I was told things like, study the Bible more. Pray more, read more, be more involved in my church, share my faith more with unbelievers. I was told to, to fight temptation and to avoid the company of people who might pull me away from the right path, to tackle my wrong desires and renegotiate my, my values and evaluate my time management. And on and on the lessons went. And no doubt, no doubt, all of those things are important. And yet, none of those things, none of those by themselves will help us to overcome spiritual affective disorder. I can read and study the Bible without ever really connecting to the author. I can pray, whether it's in my mind or out loud, without sensing God's presence. The only thing that really helps is bright light therapy. We need to walk out of the darkness and let ourselves be exposed to God's light. The closer that we are to Him, the more powerful it is. The more that we dwell in His presence, the more effective his light is to expel the darkness from our lives. In verse 7 of our text, it reminds us of this key word that we're looking at as we work our way through 1 John, fellowship. But if we walk in the light, he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Wow. You see, trying to do a thousand things right does not make us sons and daughters of light. Just as the religious leaders of Jesus' day were not considered sons of light by Jesus' standards, despite all of the good things that they were doing, 
You see, doing stuff, doing stuff will just make us focus more on ourselves and less on God. It will get us stressed out and weary and exhausted and increasingly frustrated. Because the more that we try to be what God wants us to be, the more we discover how far we are from that ideal. To walk in the light implies a direction. It is a direction that entrusts our life and our spiritual well-being to Jesus. Not to other people, not to politicians, not to parties, but to Jesus alone. To walk in the light implies action, but it is the action of following, of pursuing Jesus. Not our ability to do or to accomplish or to achieve or to complete a list. You see, he has promised to purify us from all of our sin. And he is able to do so despite our failures or our accomplishments. His presence and his light alone is all that we need to heal us from our spiritual affective disorder. But we must trust in him. We must rest in him, understanding that he alone can heal our life. And so pure fellowship begins as we step out of the darkness of our way and into the light of his way. And as we do, we experience cleansing, purity. Well, if if pure fellowship begins when we start walking in the light, it grows as we move in the direction of confessing our sins. Direction number two, confessing our sins. Now, you know, we don't hear that word sin much these days anymore, do we? We're much more comfortable with words like dysfunction, disease, mistakes, failures. In fact, a few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary actually removed the word sin from its contents. In doing so, they explained that it had fallen into disuse and was no longer a relevant word to younger generations. And so they took it out. Now last week, we learned that real fellowship means experiencing Christ and sharing that experience with others. And we also learn that genuine fellowship requires that our belief and our behaviors are taking us closer to Christ. And we want that. We want to move closer. And I hope that many of us left this service last week with a resolve to make holy choices. But if you're like me, before too much time had passed, Something happened this past week, didn't it? Somebody pushed our button. We reacted in anger. Something distracted us, and before we knew it, our thoughts were moving into dark places. 
Perhaps in a moment of weakness, we made a bad decision. Or a familiar temptation came along and we gave in. We slipped backward. We fell downward. We sinned. Not just once, probably. But maybe several times since last Sunday. Now that's me. I don't know about you. But what does this say about us as Christians? What do we do about it? How do we get to the place where our belief in Christ is growing and our behavior is getting better? Well, that's a question that we want to wrestle with today as we continue through this passage in 1 John. Let me read again verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so in these verses, John confronts two mistaken ideas that people tend to have about sin. This was true in his day, and I think it's true in our day as well. And the first mistake, the first mistaken idea is that sin is not a problem. Look again at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. Maybe your version says, if we have no sin... You see, to, to say we have, to, to recognize that we have sin in our life is to recognize that we have a moral problem. An underlying principle is at work in our being. It's not just that we do wrong things, it's that there's something wrong with us, in us. We're broken. That is a core foundational understanding of who we are. And it is a mistake to say, I have no sin. And then there's a second mistaken idea that people have about sin, and it's this. Sin is not a problem for me. In other words, other human beings may have a problem with sin, but I don't. I've gotten beyond it. Verse 10 again, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so here, John is talking about sin not as a condition, but as an action, a behavior. And apparently there were some teachers and believers in the early church that John was writing to who claimed that they had achieved a level of spirituality in which they no longer succumbed to sin. And John refutes both those lines of thinking. If we think human beings don't have a sin problem, we are deluding ourselves. And if we claim that we have not sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. That's some pretty strong language, isn't it? But John knows that we can never live deeply Never have that pure fellowship until we face the reality of sin and of our own personal sin. And so what do we do with our sin? 
What do we do with it? Every one of us will routinely do things and say things and think things that are hurtful to ourselves or others or God. When we sin, it drives a wedge between ourselves and God and between ourselves and other Christ-like people around us. And so what do we do with our sin? We've got a number of options. We can ignore it. We could try not to think about it or make excuses for it. She started it. That's one that's been around for a while, hasn't it? (laughs) Well, it's just the way men are wired. He might rationalize. Well, it's not as bad as what she did, she thinks. You see, none of us would claim to deny sin. But practically speaking, at times we choose to ignore it. We minimize it, rationalize it, and learn to live with it. And really, it's just a cover-up. Like John says, we, we don't want to admit to ourselves and God that we have a problem. Well, just as bad, another option is to obsess over it. To punish ourselves for it. To beat ourselves up for it. To wallow in guilt and shame and regret. And you see, the problem with obsessing is that it only serves to drive us deeper into sin and further from God and others and from the true self that God wants to have created in us. And so chances are you tend toward one of those two responses in your life. Either ignore sin, making excuses or in in living with it, or you obsess over it. Punishing yourself with guilt and shame. And the problem is, of course, that neither one works. Neither one removes the guilt and neither one restores us to relationship with God fully or with others. And so thankfully, in his great wisdom, God has provided for us a third option in dealing with our sin. We confess it. 1 John 1.9 is one of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture for a follower of Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. To confess your sin is to name it, to own up to it, to admit it to God And perhaps to others that we've sinned against. To admit that you've done it and it's wrong and you're sorry. Confession isn't easy. It means openly acknowledging your own failure and weakness and guilt and shame. And that's hard. But what is it that God does when we do that? As important and as helpful And as healthy as it is to confess to other human beings, ultimately, each of us must confess our sin to God. He is the primary one we've offended. And He is the only one who can do something about it. 
In fact, John says that if we confess our sins, God will do two things. First, he'll forgive us. What does it mean to forgive? It means to release someone from their debt and obligation. When someone forgives a loan, it means that you no longer need to make payments. And so when God forgives your sin, it means you no longer need to pay for that sin. You don't need to punish yourself. You don't need to do penance. And then the second thing that God does when we confess our sin is that he cleanses us. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. To purify something is to remove what doesn't belong there. To cleanse something is to get rid of the dirt. I remember an old TV commercial years ago for a laundry detergent. And it's a, in, the, in the commercial, I remember there's a middle-aged mother and she secretly borrowed her, her young teenage daughter's stylish blouse to go out with her friends. But while she's out on the town, she spills something on the blouse and it has this awful stain right in the center. But fortunately, she had this new detergent with ActiLift technology. And with one wash, the stain was gone, the blouse was returned, and mother and daughter went on with their relationship as if nothing had ever happened. What a great story course we understand there's no secrets with God he knows it all he sees every stain he feels it all but he's willing and able to not only forgive us for what we've done but to cleanse us from it the old hymn sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow. Forgiveness releases us from guilt. Cleansing removes our shame. Forgiveness takes care of our past. Cleansing makes possible our future. And all of this is possible because God is a softy who's willing to look the other way when we mess up. Right? No. All of this is possible because he is faithful and just. And this leads to the third direction that we must be moving to experience pure fellowship with God and with his people. As we walk in the light and as we confess our sins, we must also be moving in the direction of acknowledging his sacrifice acknowledging his sacrifice. Verses one and two of chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but for those of the whole world. God can forgive our sin because Jesus paid for our sin by his death on the cross. God can cleanse our sin because the blood of Jesus washes it away, no matter how deep the stain. 
In an article in Christianity Today, Mark Galley uh, notes how, how deep down the idea of punishment for sins actually makes sense to us. It's not arbitrary and it's not primitive. Galley argues that punishment somehow balances the moral books. That is why forgiveness as a, as a mere act of will is not enough. Sin must be paid for. A debt must be paid for. And so Galley gives us a couple of concrete examples. He says, we first understand the nature of just punishment as children. Your sister repeatedly changes the channel you're watching on TV to watch what she wants. She's rude and unbending until your father steps in. An apology from her is all and well and good, but you're not satisfied until your father adds that your sister can't watch TV for a whole week. Punishment is part of the solution to the problem. And if there is no punishment, you feel like justice has been cheated. We see that as kids, but we see it as adults as well, don't we? We cry out for justice when we've been wronged. By the way, we love God's mercy for ourselves. But we want God's justice to rain down on others that have wronged us. We love the Hollywood movies, don't we? The revenge movies. The screenwriters are appealing to something deep and base in the human heart. What a great injustice has been done. Retribution is due. The villain has done some dastardly deed. And all through the movie, the viewer wants the villain not, not merely to be caught, but to be punished in some violent sense that even leads to his death. And in spite of the, the predictable fireworks and the excessive violence, we keep coming to such movies precisely because we are deeply satisfied by the punishment of the offender. We see this dynamic work at work on a spiritual level. You see, our sins cannot be swept away by the wave of a hand. They deserve death. And only by death can they be adequately paid for. John says that Jesus is the propitiation. That's a fancy theological word that simply means the atoning sacrifice. Jesus paid the price. He took the punishment for me, for you, for the whole world, for each one who would acknowledge his sacrifice. I don't know what people do who have nowhere to go with their sin and their guilt and their shame. That's why they cover it up. That's why they carry it around with them in bitterness and regret. That's why they kid themselves into believing that it doesn't really matter. How much better to confess it because then and only then are we free, free to live from the very deepest part of our being, acknowledging that the deepest part of our being has been cleansed. And that's John's lesson for today. 
you know that you are living in pure fellowship with the Father when you clearly understand your sins are forgiven and your soul is free. My dear children, says John, I write this so that you will not sin. John wants us to understand the deep damage that sin does to our souls and to our relationships. But he also wants us to know that if and when we do sin, we have a Father to turn to who can forgive us and cleanse us. Praise God for being faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess them to Him. Praise Jesus for making the ultimate sacrifice so that we, as His children, can step into pure fellowship. These great promises belong to each one of us who have chosen to receive Jesus by being born again, by being renewed through the blood of Christ. I hope that that experience is true for you and that if it is true for you, that you will begin to live more fully in the fellowship God intends for you as you reflect on the freedom that forgiveness of sins brings for our past and the joy that cleansing brings for our future. Let's pray together.